Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bit in between. Welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. It has to be said that every episode is a treat this year in 2023 because I've got to admit, I haven't done anywhere near as many episodes this year as I really wished I'd done. In fact, this one that we're recording today is number 11. So by the end of the year, I'll have done basically one a month, which is kind of half my usual target. However, given what we got, what's going on this year, then please do forgive me. Um, but rest assured, for 2024, we are planning um, the people that we want to engage with and how we're going to do that. And so we're going to be back on full steam by then. We aim to take all the interviews that we've done this year as well and get back to making the shorts and the engagement pieces. So hopefully we'll get get to a position where um, the, the, the output across all the streams is working the way that it should. But in the meantime, after you've listened to this episode, maybe you've got time to think about that there is still time to submit for your abstract to Ergonomics and Human Factors 2024. You may not be aware uh, the EHF or Ergonomics and Human Factors is the flagship conference from the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors and is a fantastic opportunity to hear the new work that's going on both in research and in the applied domains. It's also fantastic for networking so pop along to ergonomics.org.uk to find out more. If you want to hear a bit about what goes in the background look in the back catalogue of this podcast where we've had interviews with the conference organisers and some feedback from some of the previous conferences. So you've got an idea about what goes on and what you can get into. It's also really good we, we, uh, to highlight that there's, uh, there's another new podcast on the circuit as well, another new ergonomics podcast. As yet untitled, that is the title, I'm not trying to be funny, it's a new podcast with Guy Osmond uh, along with Kim Hutton, and it's facilitated by Graham Coth. Find it in your podcast directory wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you want to hear a bit more about um, Guy Osmond and the work he does, go back to Series 4, Episode 2, where I chatted to him about working from home and the sort of things we need to be thinking about. Um, it's a really lovely podcast. It's a uh, more of a, I guess, a roundtable type approach to uh, to chatting. And I thoroughly recommend just going to have a listen and see, and see what you think. Anyway, on to this episode. A lot of people in the human factors world, I guess, fall into one of two categories. You're either part of a, a human factors team, working as a, a larger company, working on specific projects, or you work as a consultant, advising others on how to implement human factors in their projects. And yes, I know it's not really as simple as that, is it? Because you've got large, te- you've got teams working as part of large companies that go out and do their own consultancies, or you've got um, single people working on on larger projects. But fundamentally, we've got this idea that there is a is a consultant. Um, and what I really wanted to do was uh, we've kind of avoided that topic up to now. So I hope today's discussion may help us define it to, a bit. Today we're talking to Brendan Haslam, a human factors consultant, and together we're hopefully going to chart these murky waters a bit. So without further ado, Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, bro. Thanks for having me. No worries. So 
before we get into this whole um, con uh, contractor piece, this whole consultant piece, and how we're not all just out there to rob everybody of their money, um, I would like, love to find out a bit more about you and, and share your story. So what is your current role and what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What, what's the day job? Um, so I'm currently a, a principal human factors consultant for uh, Abbott Risk Consulting, or ARC, as people may better know us. Um, we tend to work as, as as is the norm in consultancy across of a number of different industries and different areas. Um, but at the moment, I'm primarily primarily a technical lead for human factors on a major nuclear decommissioning project, um, and tend to sprinkle in other works in other areas, um, other projects throughout the rest throughout the rest of the year as well to support that. Um, so a little bit of rail here and there. Um, working on the nuclear areas, etc. Really, but yeah, my, my primary focus at the moment is the is that nuclear decommissioning project. So, what does a what does a typical day look like for you? Um, it, it it can be it, it, it can vary as, as as is the word word in world in uh, in consultancy. A lot of time we're we're holding workshops. Uh, yesterday, I was holding um, a task analysis and human error workshop to really sort of get into the nuts and bolts of a task, which obviously helps us in the in the design world. Then. Um, it can be it can be um, attending sort of model reviews, design reviews. It can be writing substantiation documents, um, scope and strategy documents, um, management of issues logs. As I'm, as I'm sure, um, pretty much everyone in the world of human factors will be, will be familiar with from their project work. Um, but then also other bits and bobs in terms, of, you know, managing the project itself, um, liaising with uh, other stakeholders, the client, etc. Um, to make sure that we're on track, both in terms of uh, you know spend and um, project project program. Okay, I feel a bit guilty asking that question because it's a question I hate being asked. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I just find that the one of the things I like about the human factors world is very few two days are the same. Yeah. Uh, even if you structure it that way, so I do feel a bit guilty for asking you that one. No, no problem. <laughs> um, so. How did you get involved in human factors in the first place? Was it a, a first passion for you, or did you stumble upon it? Um, my passion at school, um, aside from aside from sport, which is my passion outside work, um, was product design. I really loved it. Um, you know, the whole sort of through sort of D and T at school into um, resistant materials at GCSE, and then product design at A level. That was my real my real passion. I knew I wanted to do something in that area, um, so I uh, applied for a product design engineering course, which was called product design manufacturer. At Loughborough University, um, which included a foundation year for anyone with that maths A level. A level. So I started that. Mm -hmm. um, it came pretty clear to me pretty quickly that um, that probably wasn't going to be what I wanted to do, um, mainly due to the amount of maths and sort of pure maths, which um, is, is, has never been a sort of real passion of mine. Um, so um, I applied to change course to industrial design, um, and then got a phone call from the. Um, Business tutor, I've forgotten, I've forgotten the name entirely, but um, they offered me the course of ergonomics uh, there and there on the phone, and and then said, uh, although I'll need to know within the hour if that's okay. So I had a very hurried hour of um, googling ergonomics. I've heard about it in my design A level um, a little bit, but um, yeah, sort of a, a bit of there and then decision to go for it. And um, I often describe it as sort of best sort of accident, I guess, that I, I've come across. It's sort of something that I. I didn't apply for um, initially. I hadn't, hadn't come across um, in, in that much detail, um, but I've, I've loved I've loved the career I've sort of fallen into. So uh, that's that's brilliant. The when you had that opportunity to, or um, was it an opportunity or a, a, a dictation? I don't know. Yeah. Um, 
to go and do ergonomics or have the opportunity to do that when you went to search for, what did you go and search for what did you find what, what was your initial impressions um well like i mentioned obviously having come across it a little, a little bit um in the, in the very sort of um physical type of ergonomics um in, t in terms of using it anthropometrics in my in my in my project yeah. that was i guess that was the, the only kind of thing i had in my head um so i sort of I, the, the sort of things i look for um you know and then sort of put two two together that you know i could still do the design work it just be from from that sort of from viewpoint um which which was something that um interested me i, I did come across other bits and bobs in that search in terms of things like noise and vibration and, and, and the sort of environmental ergonomics but um, really, obviously, learned way more about that on my sort of first few days at Loughborough. Uh, and this is possibly an unfair question. I can't believe I'm doing two unfair questions within like the first segment. Of it. From that initial almost burst of, um, you know, if you could let them know within an hour um, or whatever, of, or within a day of, 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 of saying that, did it live up to your expectations or, or, or not? How did that feel about, because you've kind of thrown into it, um, I mean, you must have liked it more long term now because you're still in the job. But yeah, what was the initial? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. I found it really exciting because, like I said, it was it was it was kind of nice to just be sort of in the deep end, really. Um, no real no real preconceptions of what to expect or or what I was going to come across. So you know, like I said, when when I discovered the whole world of it beyond you know the physical side and um, the envir the environmental side and everything else that came with it and um, you know the more psychology based side that we learned about in our first first couple of years um yeah it was absolutely it's absolutely something that lived up to my expectations and, and more really cool okay i guess if again it's not a fair question because you wouldn't have really said the other way but never mind <laughs> yeah um, so you're now a um shiny graduate out of uh Loughborough. you've got you've got the course and you belt what's What's, what was the path that took you from there to where you're at now? Well, my first experience of the working world was my placement year. So during my degree, I did a year at uh, Aston Martin Lagonda in Gaten, Warwickshire, right. um, which was a really great experience. A lot of people still ask me about it now. Um, I did a lot of growing up in that year um, on a personal and professional level, and um, I learned a lot um, in, in, in the sort of application of economics rather than just the sort of theoretical side. Um, as much as I enjoyed it and, and really, um, you know, wouldn't change a thing about my time there, I, I did also realise that maybe consultancy was a bit more where I wanted to go into, uh -huh. just because um, obviously the role at Aston Martin was, was, was within a couple of, of factories um, and very much focused on that, whereas I was quite keen, especially as, a, as you mentioned, a shiny new grad, to go into uh, the working world and, and get as much experience of different areas as possible. Um, so that was why I applied for the, the role at Atkins, um, which I was fortunate enough to get into the grad scheme there. Um, so did, did my first uh, five years of my, uh, well, just the five years of my career at Atkins, um, the first three of which were on the grad scheme there. So as well as um, the great experience I had there in terms of um, the projects I was on and the team I worked with, um, being on the grad scheme there as well and all the sort of additional support that came with that being being um, one of a large pool of, of graduate intake um really sort of get me got me off on a springboard um so yeah yeah I, i'm sure i'll come to it later on but yeah some of the projects i was working on in in, in, those, in in those first few years um really sort of uh filled that uh, requirement as i had for, for doing loads of different stuff on different 
different projects, different, different industries, different applications, etc. Um, and sort of set me up for the future, really. Um, within that five years, I did six months in France, working for um, EDF on Hippie Point C project, as seconded from Atkins, um, which again was a was a real dropping the was a real sort of dropping the deep end. Um, I think we won. I think we won the contract on the basis that I said I could speak French because I had a French A level. <laughs> but having having had my, my first hour and a half in the office, I realised I couldn't speak much French. So um, yeah, quickly quickly um, sort, sort of set about um, rectifying that, and uh, so I could so I could do most of the work. But it was obviously a, sort of a UK context project, so uh, mostly in English, but um, sort of French French for the more sort of social conversational side. Um, so after five years at Atkins, did a year at Arcadis. Um, pretty much just on rail, rail work um sort of workload assessment um majority and then had the opportunity to move to arc so i was approached by pete gibson um former colleague who got touch on linkedin and just sort of sold the company to me and, and the ethos of arc and um working in, in a sort of smaller team uh, and the sort of family environment that that they build here and they sort of stick towards and sort of flat flat structure um and i was just really keen to to, to go for that it just sounded like a really good next step in terms of um picking up my responsibility a bit more uh sort of being six years into, into my career and stuff yeah. And, um, so yeah that's that's where how i ended up where i am now fantastic so that um you, you mentioned that a lot of people ask you about that that first placement um with Aston Martin. how formative was that for you i mean what were, were they did they throw you into a whole range of human factors stuff um what sort of yeah. did they have you doing so i think it may have changed now but at the time there was it was the, you were the only ergonomist on site across the two sites so there's a bit of a carte blanche really in terms of in terms of um of what you could do there was, there was established methods that they used they used a method called the sue rogers uh, muscle fatigue analysis tool that i'm sure you've come across um to um, assess the um the postures of their workers across all the different uh I think there was 400 at the time um working stations to to assemble the car from nuts and bolts mm-hmm. through the paint shop and trim shop into you know onto the car that takes the road um so yeah as i mentioned we use that tool we use other tools from the hc like the art art tool um and reba etc um so yeah the, the, the day job there was to sort of do those assessments on each each working station um as well as training up human factors champions as they were called at the time to um to do the assessments as well and then um when any, when anything was you know um highlighted as a risk factor or, or, or an issue um to work with engineering teams to to overcome those um so it was more about the the assembly of the car rather than the rather than the actual design of the car as such um so yeah that was that was that was the remit there really but it was it was it was like i mentioned it was very much in the deep end but i mean that's kind of how i like things just being able to get my teeth into it and and, and really sort of get stuck in yeah, yeah, but you, you sort of said that that gave you an idea that you actually didn't want to necessarily do that in-depth work. You wanted to go down the consultancy side. Was Did you think that, um, or do you think that given your experience then, you know, everybody who's going through their ergonomics um, training should go and do that type of um, activity just to get an idea about how, we, how the work's really done? I couldn't recommend doing a placement year first and foremost enough. I think I, I think obviously um, the opportunity to in the middle of your degree to go and do um, get some work experience, stand on your own two feet, while also being in the context of a placement 
placement student, so you can you know you can use that as a bit of a get get out of jail free card if you need to. Um, is 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 something that I would would highly highly recommend. Um, in terms of in terms of w what we did there, like, like it was very much boots on the ground um, assessment. So um, again, in terms of you know going into what I went into consultancy and what I, what I do now, it was a great grounding for that in terms of. Um, actually getting out there with an assessment method talking to people building relationships and um you know actually actually formulating a result to, to that assessment brilliant i always get um i was quite keen to understand people's um engagement with them because we've seen i've certainly seen some placements happen where you sort of give the, the, the young unwitting student the literature review to do or the uh yeah. um that and it's i think there's clearly huge value in making sure that you make that work as rich for the student as well as it is for, for the company. So it's, it's really interesting to hear your feedback. Um, I think what we're going to do now, we're just going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into into the main topic and we're going to rip this idea of consultancy apart and see what it's about. Sounds so good. we'll be right back after this. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. Today we're talking to Brendan Hasler about the world of human factors consultancy. So, Brendan, in your experience, what does it mean to be a human factors consultant as opposed to just being a member of a team? Yeah, so um, from my experience, uh, being a consultant is, is, is the sort of is a requirement to have um, a good grasp of a wide range of fundamentals and techniques without necessarily being a a specialist in one which which you may be in other roles um sort of especially academia etc um and just sort of a, a confidence and application to apply those to um a range of a range of projects a range of um applications that, that come in really i think as well as that the sort of more personal slash professional um attributes as well that you require for it is is just sort of being being happy to talk to people being happy to um, be seen as the sort of um, expert, I guess, in inverted commas in the room who 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 who's, who's come in for that specific purpose um, to, um, to to deal with the problem or or, or to conduct further assessment. Um, so yeah, that I mean, that, I mean, that, that's what I see the role of consultancy. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto it again later on, but um, is yeah, I, I guess I guess if, if somebody if a client brings you in um to um to do that role then they expect you to, to you know take the ground running and do it so having the competent having the confidence and the um and the knowledge to to, to apply those techniques um from from the outset um and, and, and sort of get get to the result they're, they're looking for i guess i mean you do sort of um highlight a bit there it's that whole piece i think people might be put off by the fact that you are going in there and professing to be the expert about all things human factors and you might yeah. be on your own or you might might be a couple of you but generally you're a low number of representation um, yeah. were you not i mean you said that you wanted to be a consultant from early on did you not find that intimidating um i guess it would be easy to and, and in certain situations um um 
absolutely the case. I would say um, I, I think it's probably it's probably a fine balance between um, you know coming across proficient and confident in what you know, but also sort of admitting your vulnerabilities, especially if you if you're in a room with operators on a nuclear site, say, or or, or likewise in, in, a, in a rail in a rail context. Just explain to them, look, I'm here to set the session. I'm confident in the method we're using. I've used it before. However, I don't know anything about your world. I've never operated the plant. I've never done this or that. So that, that you know, that's that's why I need you on board. That's why I need you to, to help me. Um, and likewise, you know, likewise, when you when you deliver it um, in terms of in terms of your deliverables, you know, you need to be confident and clear in in what you can offer and what uh, and, and, and the. Um, and the results you come to, while also admitting that you know some of it may be based on assumptions or, or maybe may based on information that you've you've received anecdotally and stuff. So um, I think it's a fine balance between between those two aspects. <laughs> um, what do you think are those key skills? Um, it's not just knowing your craft, because obviously we um, you know we know how to do task analysis. We know we know the basic skills. But what do you think those? skills or characteristics are that, uh, that set a consultant aside from um, somebody who just may, maybe works as part of a um, larger human practice team? Um, I think, like I said, it's, it's, it's the personal side, I think, um, is what I would say. And we, we often we often joke sort of in, in, the, in the recruit, in, you know, when recruiting that um, most of the sort of techniques and, and, and tools and stuff you can sort of learn or be taught, but you, you need someone who's who's happy to, um, like I mentioned, you know, walk into a room and claim to be um, yeah. someone who's who, who's who's leading the session, or uh, you know, claim to be an expert in in in, in a method or, or 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 know their stuff. Like I said, so um, it does require a bit of confidence. It does require a little bit of um, application in that manner. Um, uh, and yeah, but, but again, being quite affable and being quite you know. Um, have have an ability to build those relationships to to allow that to happen, um, and I think also you, you know working in the context of consultancy, you have to you have to you know make sure that you meet the needs of the client and, and, and build those relationships and and you know hopefully lead to further work. Yeah, I think the the bit that you mentioned around um, which I I, I got to admit I, I use myself a lot is that being able to go into the room and and put the users almost at ease that you're not there to tell them their job um, yeah. because if we were the ideal nuclear operator or pilot or whatever it was then we'd be doing that because it's better paid than what we do um <laughs> the you know we we know our skills but yeah. we, we're using them they're the experts in in what it is that they do yeah um and we and it sounds an obvious thing to say but i think a lot of people miss that the, the fact that you're just going in, you're you're trying to learn from them. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, you know, I, I think especially some of the mistakes I made as a sort of fresh-faced graduate, like I said, is you know walking in somewhere with a with a shirt and tie and polished shoes and a clipboard, you know, on on a site probably isn't the, the way to go about it. You know, you you're going to have people naturally being suspicious of that and and, and thinking who's this who's this you know twenty two year old who's who's coming here and trying to tell me what to do. I think you know going in being relaxed trying to build a relationship first and foremost before you really get into it um however you need to do that um and try and you know try and get them to trust you i guess um because because rightly so rightly so they're, they're going to be suspicious and, and, and you know, not wanting to be told what to do by some young upstart i guess <laughs> yes. um 
So you, you've worked, at, you mentioned you've worked across quite a number of domains, you know, nuclear, rail. Um, what are the similarities and the differences that you found across working across a number of different domains? I think what I found, so like I mentioned, the sort of bedrock of my career has been um, rail. So the first sort of three, three and a half years was majority of rail at Atkins. Um, did the year at Arcadis. Um, so my sort of, I guess, fundamentals um, were in rail. So moving into nuclear and other spheres, um, I think it takes a little while to realise that it's a lot of the time it's the same skills, the same fundamentals, the same tools uh -huh. that you're using, um, just often with a different name or different terminology. Um, so I mentioned things like an, like an issues log, you know, or an issues and assumptions register, etc. Um, it's done in the same way um, in terms of um, in terms of identifying an issue, you know, finding recommendations, you know, allocating an action owner. Um, it's it's all the same stuff. It's just it's just different terminology and different, yeah. and different terms. Um, fundamentally, I mentioned before about sort of physical ergonomics and environmental ergonomics. You know, pretty much any project you work on, you need to get a grasp of that. Um, you know, people need to be able to fit into the spaces. People need to be able to, you know, work work there safely in the context of what they're doing. You know, in terms of you know ventilation and lighting, etc. They need to be <clears throat> adequately um, protected in terms of PPE, but also that has other things like space requirements. So, a lot of the time, that's exactly the same across um, across the industries you've got to work. You're fundamentally going to be going to be looking at a user or an operator in working in working in a, a space and need to be able to fit there comfortably and, and work comfortably in the, in the context um, as far as they can. Um, I think in terms of differences um, that I found working in rail, um, a lot of the time this, these users consider sort of customers as well as staff, you know, um, station users, sort of persons of restricted mobility. Um, there's a lot more of that sort of um, aspect, whereas I guess working in, in nuclear um, world, it, it, it's pretty much just operators and maintainers that are on, you know, well, well trained and well, well sort of swept to be on a nuclear site, and and, and the other way around the place. So um, I guess you're probably dealing with a, a few more unknowns in terms of um, in terms of uh, personnel sort of actions. Uh, I guess the psychology side of it in the in the real world. Um, but other than that, it is it's fairly similar. Um, yeah, you, you, you're still dealing with a with, with a bunch of stakeholders, and, and you know you've got to got to meet all the requirements. I mean, I I guess that's right, isn't it? Because you, you're trying to, you know, no matter what the domain is, the toolbox is largely the same. Yeah, um, you're pointing around about yes, we might call it different things in different um, domains because the way it's come come up. But you know, a task analysis is a task analysis. Is a ta you know, we we recognise it for what it is. Yeah. Um, but then I guess you've just got to keep on top of that terminology as well, yeah. Uh, which can be, I don't know about you, but I can find that a challenge at times. Absolutely. I think having, having like I said, having the three or four years in rail and getting a good grasp of acronyms and what everything meant and, and the names and use of different design stages, then to, then, then to go to nuclear and try and learn them all over again, yeah. which, which is, again, like I said, the same tools with a different name or a different acronym or the different stages called something different altogether. Uh, it did take a little while and, you know, and that can even vary across projects and stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's something you've got to get used to. So from a very personal perspective, yeah. uh, you wanted to be that, that consultant. You, what have you got out of it? Um, do you think specifically by being a consultant, what that you perhaps wouldn't have got if you'd gone down a different route? Um, 
I think just purely that diversity work. I'm, I, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that happens with the roles. I'm sure you know people who work across the sort of HR spectrum, you know, get a diversity in what they do. But but I think just 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 the opportunity to go into different settings and and, and trying to play the same thing um, and build those relationships is, is what it is really. So um, so for example, my my first my first job that we won at Atkins was for a, a watchmaker um, doing a doing a assessment of um of operate posture um which was very similar to work that aston martin uh, previously um we did we did the similar sort of thing on sort of checking desks um at, at london airports so again very similar tools and techniques but a very different context very different um setting um and then moving into rail uh, again this is within my first sort of few years you know looking at station design um Across a number of stations across 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 London, um, workload assessment, depot design, um, you know, using using CAD as well to do to do that sort of thing. Um, so, I, I guess that was the the sort of real the real takeaway from my first years of my career, and uh, I'm getting out of it what I wanted. And then and then into now what I do in nuclear. So I mentioned things like substantiation reports, which is essentially just just pulls everything together in terms of the physical side. The environmental side, the psychology, the human error analysis. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I guess in a nutshell, one of those reports is 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 what I'm looking enough to do, what in my career in terms of working in different in different spheres. So, without divesting client confidentiality or anything like that, what's been the, I guess, the most interesting project you've been involved in? What's the one that, what's the one or maybe two projects that you'd go back and think about and go, wow, that was amazing? Uh, I probably mentioned three. So the first one was um, Crossrail. Um, so uh, very early into my first couple of years at uh, Atkins, I worked alongside my colleague, John Ryder, who's suddenly no longer with us, but um, it's just about um, the sort of best, uh, sort of um person to learn from i could have had back then uh, both in terms of um teaching you on the job but also sort of giving you the freedom to to uh, i guess make your own mistakes um so, so yeah we worked on uh, 13 station designs across sort of north across rail sort of essex aspect northeast spurs it was called um that was just super interesting so as i mentioned you didn't really have to think about things like maintenance and and the staff on the site, um, although a lot of it was sort of ticket office design, but you had to think about all the different users at the train station, how they might operate, you know, how how they evacuating, how they evacuate in 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 in, uh, in in terms of fire, uh, you know, where, whether that happened on the platform on the train or um, super interesting, and also had so much sort of public um, scrutiny on it as well. Um, you know, people are so interested in what's going on and, and want to know about things. Um, so, as well as the, you know, the, the sort of nuts and bolts of it, it also had to look good. You know, working with architecture teams to to make it look shiny and new and um, attractive and, and color schemes and, um, you know, ha having to do that sort of having to that sort of buy off between what looks the best as, um, you know, to what performs the best or, or 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 you know other 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 demands like what might be most cost effective etc so that's one that i go to back to a lot because it was one of my first projects and also one that i um used so many different skills on and and, and applied so many different um sort of considerations to um the one in france i mentioned so that was hinky point c i worked on in france um so 
again, a lot of public interest in that project. Um, having to apply everything I'd learned to that point to the project to a team of engineers in France who didn't really have any understanding um, of ergonomics and human factors, um, trying to sort of teach them teach them why it was important and, and why they should be interested. Not just that I'm, you know, the again the sort of 25 year old who's from England who's trying to tell them what to do, trying to encourage them that it would it would you know improve the project and and would save save you know rework down the line if we got things right first time. Uh, and like I mentioned, obviously sometimes doing that in in, in French or attending meetings in French um, was was tricky, um, but sort of had enough to get by and understand what was going on. Um, and then as I mentioned now uh, at ARC, the, the decommissioning project that I'm, I'm lead on, um, both as because as I mentioned, it sort of pulls together all different aspects, um, often in one document, um, to sort of explain why we've got confidence in, that the operators can do. Um, certain things in th certain ways or why, or why maintainers can main th maintain things effectively um, but also having the opportunity to lead it as well um, both from a sort of project management side and in terms of uh, sort of mentoring and supervising um, more junior colleagues um, there's been something that I've really 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 enjoyed and really sort of relished. Cool um, certainly that whole piece about it, I find it hard enough to do human factors in English never mind trying to uh, deliver it in the, in the in French as well I that would have been a challenge. Yeah, I'm certainly not for one second claiming that I was anywhere near fluent. I'm, I'm sure if, if, if anyone that I work with over there hears this and hears me claiming that, then I'd probably get some messages. But um, I was I was certainly capable to have a conversation, um, especially after a beer after work, uh, and I was uh, sort of competent enough to get by in the office uh, again, mate, even just to build those relationships with people on a coffee break. Yeah. Um, talking French, so then then you get back to your desk and you can talk in English. Um, sort of building that sort of trust and and, and um, camaraderie, I guess, which was which was which is important on so many um, projects. I mean, that's, that's quite that language barrier is quite quite a significant challenge, anyway. But what do you think that's the biggest challenge you've faced in doing what you've in your career so far? Or yeah. have there been other challenges? Uh, that was certainly a challenge. Like I mentioned, going over there as the embedded. Um, as the embedded HF specialist again, that fine balance of claiming you're the old specialist uh, and also being, you know, affable enough to say, but but not in what you do, sort of thing, um, and, and trying to trying to get their buy into what you do. Um, I think a lot of the time as well, um, not only in that context, but um, especially in the rail context as well, sort of you know getting people to understand. What human facts is and what ergonomics is, and why they should why they should trust you or even give you the time of day. Um, you know, in the past, I sort of worked with people like trade union reps, etc., um, and trying to sort of you know persuade them that you know what you what you're doing will benefit them, um, and you know is of interest to them. Uh, you're not just there for for the sake of it or for any any malicious reasons. Um, a lot of time, that is, I would say, that's the challenge. But it's something I enjoy. I guess. At the end of it, if you manage to make those relationships, then obviously you feel like you've really achieved something. Um, but I think, yeah, just just build those relationships with with people, and also you know people like project managers, um, you know, persuading them your value, I guess, and and and, and why the why the cost associated with you is beneficial, and uh, any delay to their project why it's beneficial, and things like that. So um, I think I think that's been my, my biggest challenge, and probably will be until until I retire. <laughs> I mean, certainly that piece around 
justifying the cost because it's it's one of the things I talk about quite a lot about the the investment. So applying human factors is an investment um, because it yeah. stops you having to fix things later on down the line. But that's that's often quite a challenge, isn't it? It's to try and get people to invest early on, yeah, rather than trying to fix it down the line. But it's a tough one to sell. I mean, I think I'm very lucky. Well, we're very lucky in what what I work in that. Obviously, in the highly regulated industries, um, especially sort of nuclear and rail, and oil and gas, etc., the, the regulator obviously makes it very clear that human factors and ergonomics should be should be um, consulted. So, you know, there's an element of of, of them having to, to to speak to us. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's important that we do sort of sell the benefit as well, um, a sort of ground level. Um, and also some of, some of the projects I've mentioned previously. So the, the one at the watchmaker. Um, some of the rail ones um, we've worked on, um, other sort of workspace design projects I've worked on. I really, I really like it when we get a project where it's not um, not as regulated because because then it's more about you know it's purely about the benefit of what ergonomics can can offer. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a big I'm a big sport fanatic, and I really think there's there's an area to be tapped into in there. Um, you know, there's so much goes into it. You have football teams having throwing coaches, etc. There has to be there has to be a um, there has to be an application of, of, of you know what we do and, and that task analysis and that sort of understanding the psychology of things and um, trying to improve comfort and, and etc. and performance. Uh, there has to be more of a sphere in there for us to, to tap into to um, to try and improve performance and improve um, yeah comfort and yeah perception really. So is, is this now the start of you going to tap up the, your favourite sports teams to try and get the, uh, some human factors roles within within? Um, I'm, I'm I'm sure I'm sure if I could if I could if I could win some of that I'm sure I could be very happy. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure it's something that we specialise in at the moment. So um, yeah, probably limited scope to do that. I think somebody's got to be first. Yeah, um, that's been really really insightful and really useful. Um, what we'll do we're going to, we're going to take a another quick break and then we'll back, get back with the final three. Okay, next. Just before Barry gets to the final three, my name's Nick Rome. Let me tell you about this. Technology in our world is evolving at a phenomenal pace. And keeping up with what that means in the human factors world can be challenging. That's where Human Factors Cast comes in. Human Factors Cast is a weekly podcast that highlights and breaks down stories that are chosen by you, the human factors community. New York State is giving out hundreds of robots as companions for the elderly. Buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreen. A prototype just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. The show provides perspective based on experiences from different domains and different industries. We even cover some of the hottest conferences in the field. On this episode, we're recapping EHF, Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, Neuro Ergonomics Conference, Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, UXPA International. Join me, Nick Rome. And me, Barry Kirby. Every Friday morning when Human Factors Cast drops on YouTube and your favorite podcast directory. And remember, it, it depends. depends. And now I'm going to send it back over to Barry for the final three. Oh, it makes me giggle every time. Um, so let's get into these final three questions then. Um, and we ask these questions of, of everybody who comes on. Uh, just as a bit of fun, really. Um, if you got a favourite book or a paper, if you've got something that you go to repeatedly that is like your Bible, um, that could be either a technical book or it could be a fiction book. 
Um, in terms of the one that I used to sort of all the time, you mentioned sort of Bible. Um, so Body Space by Pheasant Hazelgrave. I'm sure everyone's uh, familiar with it. If not, this probably should be. Um, you know, in, in, in certain uh, projects, applications, there's their own sort of uh, client-based document. But uh, fundamentally, it's all it's all based on the, um, you know, aspects that are in there. So um, if, if there's no other guidance which sort of supersedes it, then that's the sort of one I go to. Um, yeah, it's uh, got me out of a few um, six situations in the past. Um, if you could, if you go back to your younger self and whatever age suits you, yeah. what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think probably just to be a bit patient. Um, I'm sure some of my uh, previous managers would agree. Um, I like to think of myself as quite an um, ambitious person, um, but especially on that grass game I mentioned, just to sort of try and soak everything up um, from all the, the people you work with, um, you know, people who've, who are a bit longer in the tooth in in, in, the, in the in the discipline, in the uh, in the profession than you are. Um, you know, I think I was quite keen to to get to the next step in terms of um, you know doing a bit more on my own, to be a bit more um, independent. Um, so I think, yeah, just, uh, just 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 sort of take the opportunity to circle that that in. And um, yeah, let it sort of guide you in future career, I think. And so finally, fast forward yourself to the end of your career, you're, you're retiring. What would you like to be remembered for? I think this is the trickiest one. So obviously you're getting me a bit of the insight of what might be coming. Um, so um, I'm not really sure how to answer this, but uh, having mentioned before that I think it's so important that you build those relationships uh, in, in, in consultancy and, and human facts in general. Um, sort of, you know, you get in, you you, you try and be, um, you try and build that camaraderie so people want to work with you. Um, so I'd like to think that people would, uh, that I worked with previously, um, as well as obviously thinking that I'm, you know, I'm decent at what I do is that I was, you know, nice to work with and, um, you know, would, would, work, would work with me again, um, I would think. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that was that was that was a uh, what I'd be remembered for. Brilliant, Brendan. Thank you ever so much for your thoughts and your insights today. Um, behind the scenes, we've had a um, a couple of um, interruptions and um, postponements because of me getting house renovated and things like that. So thank you very much for bearing with me. No Anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, talk about what it what they've heard today. How would they go about doing it? Uh, I'd say LinkedIn's the best way. Um, as I mentioned, as a as a sport fanatic, my other social media is just full of um, sports. So yeah, I, I would say yeah, link, LinkedIn's the best way. I'm I'm, I'm fairly uh, keen at checking that and keeping an eye on what's going on, going on. So um, I'm sure I'm sure people can uh, type in my name on there and uh, find me. Brilliant, and we'll make sure that your um, your uh, details are in the in the guest description as well. So. Thank you, Brendan. Really appreciate it. And thank you um, for watching and listening wherever you're to, uh, consuming this information from. As ever, your feedback would be really welcome through whatever medium you're consuming this episode. Either comment below it or, or drop us any sort of feedback, direct message uh, with your questions, comments, and, and whatever else feedback you want to give us. And we will see you on the next episode.
Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human the Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See time. You next and remember, it's more than just common sense. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.